0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Kingsway. We're in our second week now of this series called Surviving Hard Times. This came for me last fall. I was reading a book that a friend recommended called um, The Land Between, a highly recommended by a pastor named Jeff Mannion. And so I'm kind of following his outline while taking some of his stuff and adding in some of my own stuff. And this is really part B to part A. Part A was last week. But for some reason, they won't give me an hour and a half on Sunday morning to just speak. They think most of you will probably Tune out at some point. I've pushed that a few times, I've come close. I'm just kidding. The truth is I needed two different messages to to communicate this because I needed you to process last week in order to get this week. So if you're online and you haven't heard last week, if you're visiting with us today, you weren't here last week, no big deal. I'll bring you up to speed. So what we found out really on Easter Sunday and then leading into last week is there's a group of people known as the Israelites and they are not really a nation yet. They're still kind of forming but they as a group of people are living in Egypt and in Egypt what happened was the Pharaoh saw them growing in number, excuse me for a second, and got concerned that maybe they would get so big that they would try to overthrow the, the leadership. And so they made them slaves, and uh, they started to increase the burden. I don't think American slavery, which was a terrible blight on American history, this was probably worse in many ways, though not in every way. And uh, it's backbreaking, brutal work, treated terribly, and given a task that was impossible to accomplish, and yet if they didn't accomplish it, they could be beaten or killed right there in front of their families for not fulfilling the duty. It was a bad, bad deal. And God said, I've been listening, I'm paying attention, and I'm going to save you. And for the the Israelites, it sounded fantastic. They were excited that God was going to show up in the midst of their pain and save them. And they rallied around God. And God sent in these 10 plagues. And then these plagues were intended to shame the false gods of Egypt, but also to display God's might and power over creation and rulers. Finally, the Pharaoh says, take these people and get them out of here. And so the Israelites start to go. But what we learned last week is they weren't not, they weren't not. I think that means they were. I think I said that wrong. Double negative. And they weren't not, not ready, I'm joking, sorry, they were not ready for battle. And so God clearly says, I can't lead them really up along the Mediterranean to the promised land, which would have been the highway one version to where God's leading them. Instead, I need to take them on a journey. And this journey led them eventually through the Sinai Peninsula, I showed you pictures of that last week, and then into the Paran or Paran Desert. Now, the Sinai Peninsula is, is rocky, rugged terrain. The desert, as you can imagine, it's like any desert, like, like what you saw in the pictures there. Here is what one doctor, Dr. Cloud Mariatini, I think is how you say his name, I'm not sure. Here's what he had to say about their journey. After the Israelites left Egypt to cross the Red Sea, They traveled through a huge and frightening wilderness. In the Sinai Peninsula, most of the land is devoid of water and vegetation, except in oases and wadis, dry riverbeds that may be filled with water during the winter flood. The wilderness was a harsh and inhospitable area. The wilderness through which Israel traveled on their way to the promised land was a hard place. To many of those Israelites who came out of Egypt, The promise of deliverance had proven false. Instead of a land flowing with milk and honey, they got a desert that was ready to devour them. The people believed that they had escaped death in Egypt only to be delivered to death in the wilderness. The faith of the people had eroded with the cruel reality of life in the desert. My kind of thesis for this series is that Whether you're in an Egypt, or on your way to a promised land, living in the land between, life is full of highs and lows. And whether you're currently at a high or currently at a low, the reality is there are lessons to be learned and lessons to be remembered. When you're on the high and you're kind of looking out, it feels like, man, life is great. Nothing's going wrong. Some of you who've lived a little bit longer than others, you can remember back and go, whoo, I remember that season six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. I sure hope that never happens again. But you know each peak is going to be followed by a what? A valley. And so it's important when God leads us through a valley, when life even takes us through a valley, that we learn the lesson of the valley so when we're at the mountaintop, we don't forget. And we see this throughout the story of Exodus and Numbers. So as God led them out, they get out into the desert, and it only took, we looked at last week, uh, three days, and they were thirsty, you can imagine. So they cried out, we need water, and God miraculously provided water. Then in the next chapter, they were hungry. It's been a while. We're hungry. And so God miraculously provided quail and manna. And in the next chapter, he provided water miraculously again. Now, what we begin to see in this story is that even though they're in a hard place, God is there and he's going to meet all of their needs. Focus on needs here because what we learn in that chapter about the, the quail, in Exodus chapter 16, by the way, quail, or not quail, manna literally means, what is it? We have different texts that describe manna. M- manna, it says, is like a, it's like a flaky bread substance that tastes like honey. But we have other texts that describe it as something like a coriander seed. What we know is this, it probably was a seed that gathered along the ground, and they would go out in the morning and gather enough for the day. And they would take it, and they would either grind it up and make, and like, and make a mush out of it. My best, like what I have in my mind is the best I can put together is like grits. Or they would take it, mush it up, and bake it as a bread. Now, here's the thing to know about this. As God is meeting their needs, he's caring for them, he's providing for them, just like he does for you and he does for me. Notice this in Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. So the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. That's the promised land, Canaan. Okay, did you catch that? Imagine breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of the week for 40 years eating the same meal. I told you last week, about how I failed at this. I had this grandiose idea because the guy who wrote that book, he, he ended up taking like a toffee nut protein bar or something and, and he ate, was gonna eat it every meal for like three days or four days just to kind of get a feel for what Israel went through after three or four days and how hard it was. And last week I told you that I decided to do this till my wife made spaghetti and I failed. Well, after convicting myself in my sermon, I decided I'm gonna do this. And my one exception was gonna be that my wife's birthday was on Tuesday and I would take off dinner in order to celebrate with her, and then I would go right back to it. And I did fantastic. And it was unbelievably difficult. I woke up Monday morning, I had a meeting Monday morning, and we went over to Billy's house, our new executive director. And Billy loves to eat and he loves to cook. And Billy made a French toast with fresh fruit and whipped cream. He made fresh quiche. There were snacks and drinks galore. And I took with me my measly little breakfast. And I sat around the table with my friends while they literally, my friend, Ben Bullard, who I think is in this room right now, he literally said, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. (laughs) Ben and I used to be really close friends. (laughs) And everybody was checking on me. They made fun of me. Are are you sure you don't want to start this at lunch? I'm like, yeah, I wondered the same thing. And then I forgot this, like, I could have picked when I started. I just wasn't thinking. And it was amazing between lunch meetings and showing up at dinner stuff. I couldn't wait for my wife's birthday. My mother-in-law made chicken pot pie. I don't even love chicken pot pie, but it was the best thing I've ever tasted. And it had been like 36 hours. <laughs> I only made it another day or so. And then I came up with a really good reason to break my pattern again. So guess what? I'll be starting again. Now, take whatever your favorite food in the world is. I don't even care what it is. One of my favorite, probably the favorite, even more is spaghetti, is probably roast beef. My wife makes this amazing roast beef meal, carrots and potatoes. Oh, it just tastes so good. I can just eat till I'm sick. In fact, I usually do, which is why she can't make it all the time. Could you imagine eating that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I can, but not every day for 40 years. Now, what happens is we're going to do a one-two, skip a few. See, when the book of Exodus ends, the book of Numbers begins. So if you, if you go through the biblical order, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But in order, it would go Genesis, Exodus, kind of Numbers. Leviticus kind of stops to tell us about the priesthood. That's the Levites, that's the tribe, Leviticus from the Levites. And then we get to Numbers. So right when Exodus ends, Numbers begins, which is why I asked you to read two chapters a day in Exodus, in the end of Exodus, you're gonna go right into Numbers. Numbers begins, and we're... Basically, one year forward. It's actually about a year and a month and a half, or a year and two months forward from exiting Egypt. <clears throat> what we find is, <coughs> excuse me, they're basically at the Sinai Peninsula, down to the south part, if you look at a map, of the Sinai region. And now God has told them, all right, you're gonna leave the mountain. That's where God gave Moses the law, and he met with Moses up on the mountain. You're now gonna go, and you're gonna march right into the promised land. It's been a year, you guys are ready. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in Exodus 16? that they ate manna every day for 40 years? Well, yeah, but they weren't supposed to eat manna every day, every meal for 40 years. The reason the Israelites ended up eating manna every day, every meal for 40 years is because they didn't learn the lesson of the desert. How do I know? Well, because when we find ourselves at Numbers chapter 11, Look at verse 4. Then the foreign rabble, I love that, who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, and quiche we wanted. <laughs> but now our appetites are gone, and all we ever see is this. What is it? Is how the Hebrew reads. Now I wanted to notice a few things. I just want you to notice something. I, I, What's going on in the very first part about the foreign rabblers? <laughs> I love that phrase. What's going on is as God put his might on display in Egypt many of the Egyptians are watching God put to shame the false gods and they begin to say, okay apparently our gods really aren't that tough and when God calls the Israelites to leave, many of the Israelites have become friends with Egyptians and they start to say, can we go with you? And they literally follow along. Now what happens is uh, they aren't really technically a part of the Israelite nation. But if you read all of what we call the Torah, those first five books, if you read all of the Torah, you're going to find that God consistently provides for these foreigners, even though they're not considered part of the people, they're outsiders and God makes a way for them. But right here, they begin to rabble rouse. They begin to cause some trouble because through their complaining, the Israelites are led into sin. And what we find is even though it's about a year and two months later, they're complaining again again it's only been a year and two months of the same meal every day you can understand I mean how many different ways can you make grits and bread because that's about what we're looking at in a desert with no other herbs or spices or meat or anything else to throw in there but there's something in their story they're not just whining Anybody have kids? They are whining in a way that is directly attacking the Lord, questioning his provision, questioning his care, questioning his love, and to the point where they are literally now aiming that attack at Moses. And what I want you to see today is we looked at the Israelites complaining last week, but what I want you to see is something dramatically different, something about the way that Moses is about to complain is different than the way the Israelites complain. Take a look with me. Numbers chapter 11, verse 10. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated, and Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me and your servant so harshly? have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. You know, the Israelites, one of their major attacks and accusations against God is they go to God and they say, did you intend to bring us out to this desert to kill us? Is that your plan? This is your plan for us. Moses kind of sounds a lot like the Israelites, doesn't he? Well, if you were to back up a little, if you were to go to the chapter before this and then run right into this passage, you would find, as I told you already, that the Israelites have left the Sinai Peninsula. They are marching to the Promised Land. They are now in the desert of Paran or Paran. They are on their way there. All they need to do is arrive and take what the Lord is giving them. If you don't know the story of Joshua, a phenomenal book when you're done with numbers, jump right on into. The very first battle they run into is the battle of Jericho. They don't even pick up a sword. They don't even have to do anything. They literally just follow God's instructions and he hands the city over to them. But that came 40 years later because apparently 14 months in the desert hasn't taught them what they need to know. Apparently, they aren't learning the lesson. When they do finally arrive at the promised land, they send in some spies. And the majority of the spies come back and say, man, we can't beat these guys. They're too big, they're too strong. They have fortified cities and walls. We're gonna lose! But there's two spies that are going, no, no, no! god's got this god's got this but the people believed the other spies and so god said no no you can't go into the promised land then we're going to wait 40 years you're just going to keep circling around in this desert i'm going to let one generation die off i'm going to let the younger generation raise up and they are going to trust me and they're going to go into the promised land it was a discipline but also this group wasn't ready And apparently, wasn't going to get ready. See, it's important that we learn these lessons. So what's the lesson for us to learn? The major difference between Moses and the Israelites is the way that they are venting. See, the Israelites are doing a lot of crying and whining. Moses is not. Moses is not just crying or whining. Moses is actually crying and there is a world of a difference. Every parent understands. When a child lays on the floor and throws a fit because you won't give them what they want and kicks their legs and screams. Nobody else's kids do this, right? I want it. why can't you? Can I play the Xbox? No, you can't play the Xbox. You've already played, you know, a week ago. You're good. No, I want to play, why do you want to do that? Stop. Versus a child who comes to you has hurt themselves, say, on the playground, or has a legitimate want or need and says, I'm hungry, can you feed me? I'm thirsty, can you get me a drink? And they look at you with those big eyes and say, oh, Father. (laughs) See, Moses is having that kind of conversation, but I want you to see this in his conversation. Moses is being unbelievably vulnerable with God, and that right there is terrifying. Because in order order to be vulnerable with God, you have to acknowledge that you need someone other than yourself to fix the problem. Jeff Manion, in his book, I like the way he says it. He says this, when traveling through the land between, we can feel that we are carrying unbelievable weight or being ripped apart by forces beyond our control. In our disorientation, it is possible to overlook a basic healing exercise. That exercise is acquainting God with our deep need. Somehow, we don't respond to his invitation to come and cry out. But here's the thing. Most of you in this room are going to naturally struggle with this, because when life gets hard, we tend to, and again, I'm painting with big, broad strokes, so tons of grace, tons of mercy, send your email to someone else. We tend to, we tend to take on controlling behaviors, here's what I mean by that. So for some of you, when life gets hard, and you get anxious, and you get afraid, you tend to slip into, maybe some of you go into withdrawal. I'm going to pull away from my family, my friends, and those I love while I figure things out on my own. But because of that, you tend to do that with God. I don't believe that God can handle this. I'm not sure he's even listening. Is he even tuned in? Does he care anymore? I better take care of this. And what you do is you close off the prayer spigot. And when you do that, you actually close yourself off from the power and the resource of heaven. Others of us, we take on a controlling behavior. You might call it um, aggression or control. I'm not just going to pull away from everybody. No, no, no. I'm going to step in and I'm going to take charge because I'm the man of this house and they're going to do what I told them to do. I had one guy come to me after a sermon I preached to men. He totally missed what I was saying. Because he came down all jacked up on the passages I was reading, missed all the points that I made, and talked to me about being the leader of his home. And that's what he needs to do. And he needs to go home and tell his family, this is what we're doing. I said, man, you were wrong. You were wrong, wrong, wrong. Like, you need to come in and talk with me before you have that conversation. No, pastor, I just want to thank you for today. He took his family. He uprooted them. He moved them to a brand new job in Florida. And roughly 18 months later, he came back and his family had fallen apart. Kids were on medication for depression. He was about to lose his wife. And I said, I wish you would have listened to me. He was just gonna take control. They were falling apart. I'm not gonna trust God to work this out. No, no, no. I'm gonna fix this. Some of us go into perfection mode. I know what I'll do. Everything, Everything is so chaotic and crazy. I know what I'll do. I'll just keep everything looking perfect on the outside. I'll dress nice. I'll look good. I'll work out. I'll eat right. I'll make everybody else think I got it together when inside I am wasting away. I'm not going to stop and cry out to God. No, 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 no. I'll just handle it or at least make it look like I'm handling it. Others of us sometimes resort to attention-seeking. This is where we do a lot of whining and crying like the Israelites. But we never actually stop for a moment and go into the presence of God like Moses is doing and start to lay out our concerns, our fears, our anxieties, our heart's needs in an open and honest way that says, God, I'm here. Help. Here's what's going on, and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling afraid. I kind of want to quit. But I'm here. I believe that women tend to do this better than men, tend to. Again, broad strokes, give me grace. I think most men are so afraid to be vulnerable, especially with your wives and your children. And look, there's some wisdom in that. Your wives and your children take lead from you, men. They're going to follow your lead. If you're okay, they're okay. The problem is when you're not really okay, and you don't really let anybody know, especially God, you're missing out on a phenomenal blessing. So let me just give you a quick view, real quick, of scripture. There are these heroes of scripture, and ladies, I apologize, they're all men. There are some amazing women of scripture too. But there are these men in scripture who find themselves at the brink of a difficult and complex, painful situation. And what they do consequently is cry out. A prophet named Elijah just got done bringing a beat down on the prophets of Baal. These false prophets. And if you read this, in, I believe it's 2 Kings chapter and around chapter 16, 18, somewhere in that range. When he goes to battle with these prophets, literally God sends fire from heaven, consumes his uh, sacrifice, but leaves theirs alone in order to say, Elijah is my real prophet he ends up destroying them but the queen at the time whose name is Jezebel please don't name your daughters Jezebel he, the queen Jezebel makes a threat against Elijah says for what you've done I'm going to kill you he just went to battle with 450 false prophets one kicked their hiney and now we find him running for his life God comes and he meets Elijah in that place just like Moses and instead of rebuking Elijah you fool get back in the game come on You know what God does for Elijah? It's one of the best stories in all the Bible. God bakes him bread. He has a raven bring some food. He literally makes a drink. Elijah takes a nap. It's like God is saying, you're pretty worn out, Elijah. I could see that. Let me care for you. When Elijah finally does this a couple times, when Elijah finally wakes up, God takes him up to a cleft of a rock and God puts on his power and display in a huge storm, basically, multiple times, maybe even a tornado of some sort. We don't know for sure. But finally, at the end of it all, God just whispers to Elijah. And we learn that it's the still, small voice of God in the moment of our deep need. God shows up and says, I'm here and I care. Jeremiah Maybe you don't know Jeremiah. You've just seen his words all over your Facebook page. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. You know that passage? The one that you all go around claim for you, did you know it really wasn't for you? Not that it doesn't apply for you, but it wasn't for you. See, God called Jeremiah, and he said, Jeremiah, you're going to go be a prophet to my people. They are hard-hearted, and they won't repent like the people of Israel. You're going to go to their leadership, and you're going to tell them to repent and turn to me. They're not going to do it, but you're going to keep telling them anyway. And what's going to eventually happen, Jeremiah, is it's going to go bad for you. And there's one story, I love this story in the Bible, where uh, these, these kings have gathered together their false prophets, and they're, they're about to go to battle. And all the false prophets are yes men. Leadership 101, never surround yourself with just yes men. And they have only yes men. The one king looks at the other king, and he's like, is there anybody else in the land who might disagree with this? Like, is there anybody else that has a contrarian thought we might should listen to? And the one king goes, ugh, there's Jeremiah, but he always says bad stuff about me. We shouldn't talk to him. And the other king goes, let's just hear what he has to say. So they bring in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah loves it because he's all sarcastic. I means the biblical sarcasm. Okay. So Jeremiah looks at him. He's like, oh, yeah, go to war. You're going to win. It's going to go great. <clears throat> and the king says, no, 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 seriously. It's going to go bad for you, really bad for you because the Lord is not with you. You've hardened your heart. You won't repent. They eventually beat up Jeremiah and throw him in a cistern. Oh, thanks, God. What I get for doing your will and what you ask me to do is bad things happen. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah, that's how it goes sometimes. Jeremiah writes a book called Lamentations. You ever read it? Probably not. Most of us skip it. We can't figure out why the Bible is so obsessed with lambs. Like, what is going on here? Lamentations actually stands for the lament. It's Jeremiah now looking out over a destroyed Jerusalem because the people wouldn't listen to him, and he is crying, weeping. They call him the weeping prophet. Some, actually, I remember my Old Testament professor in college calling him the cursing prophet. Because in Hebrew, Jeremiah gets right up to the brink of cursing God, but he does not cross that line. What do we learn in that? Jeremiah is being extremely vulnerable with God. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm scared. I don't get it. What are you doing? Why won't they listen? Help! Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you is God's answer of help and hope. It's God saying to Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. So when you're going through the hard place, I'm not done with you. But more importantly, it's God's promise for Israel. Israel, you won't repent. You will not make me number one. So I'm going to send you through a hard season. And in that hard season, do not forget me because there is a better day coming. I know the plans I have for you. Do you know Jeremiah is actually writing to a future generation who would actually be experiencing the pain of the discipline for their parents? And Jeremiah's writing to them and saying, don't quit because it's not the end. There's a promised land that's coming. How about the great King David? You ever read the Psalms? Man, you ever read the Psalms? You're like, this guy needs a Xanax. Like, what is the deal? Oh, I'm surrounded all around. My enemies are coming to kill me. Everybody hates me. Oh, Lord, why do you turn your face from me? What's going on? Did you ever watch? Hebrew poetry often is in chiastic form. And so what happens is the bottom ends mirror each other and they keep mirroring each other until they get to the middle. And so what happens often in Hebrew chiasm is as David or whoever's writing is expressing their pain my enemies are chasing me. I'm afraid for my life. I don't know what's going to happen. They surround me all around. Then it gets to this point in the middle because that's the the climactic point where it says, but I trust in my God and then it builds out from there. So therefore my enemies will not win. They will not take me. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And what happens throughout the Psalms is there's this honest cry for help. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where to turn, but I trust you. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to lead me forward. So, God, I come to you, and here's what I need. And then we find ourselves at Jesus. If you don't know this, if you're visiting today, but just before Jesus dies on the cross, he goes into a garden to pray. And his prayer sounds like this, Father, if there's any other way to get this job done, please let's do that. It takes Jesus praying that prayer multiple times before it finally changes Jesus, not the plan. Jesus is so stressed out, we're told that his uh, sweat is like drops of blood in the book of Luke. There's a medical phenomenon known as hematidrosis. It's where the capillaries in your forehead can actually burst, mixing blood and sweat together. And it is extremely rare and extremely painful. But Jesus is so stressed out about the physical and spiritual pain that's coming. He just begins to cry out, and here's what I love. It says, I believe it's in Luke, that God sent angels to minister to him. Can I just be honest for a minute? I don't fully get angels. I've studied and I've read, and a lot of different churches land in a lot of different places. My quick caution on angels before I talk about them is avoid the extremes. People see an angel behind everything and believe everybody's got a personal angel. I just don't see that lining up with Scripture. I could be wrong. But people who believe that angels are not active today, I just don't see that either. They're there throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. I have every reason to believe they're possibly in this room with us right now. But here's the most important piece. When Jesus cried out in honesty to God, God ministered to him. I don't even know what that means. But it means, in the very least, that he cares. That he's listening and that he wants to do something about it. If we'll only cry out and not just complain. Maybe you're struggling to believe that God actually cares because of what's been going on in your story. Take a look at some of these passages. Psalm 34, 15 says this. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for God is listening right now. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God. For he cares about you. James 4, 2 and 3. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Remember Jesus in the garden? One of those lessons you need to learn in the land between. Jesus in the garden doesn't just pray, God, I've decided I'm going to call down the legions of angels and just go ahead and take out the enemy. By the way, do you know Jesus said he could do that? Jesus literally said, I can call down all of heaven's armies right now. I can stop this. It's, I have the power to do this, but I'm not going to do what I want. I'm going to do what the Father wants. One of the lessons to learn in The Land Between is the sooner you get to the place of trusting God and following whatever he wants, the better it's going to go for you. See, as believers, and I realize some of you watching online, listening online, or in here today, you aren't yet there. It's okay. Just keep asking questions. It keeps showing up. But as believers, did you know that Paul tells us God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes? That means God's never going to waste any moment of your life. He's going to seize everything that's ever happened to you, your good choices, your bad choices, other people's good choices, their bad choices, accidents that happen, things that go wrong, medical diagnoses. He's got it all in the palm of his hands, and he will not waste it. So whether it's good or whether it's hard, he's going to use it for his glory to shape you and shift you and carve you into this beautiful thing that he's making now, if you're not a believer in this room, you have not put your hope in Jesus, then I encourage you today because right now your painful moments are being wasted because they're not conforming you into the likeness of God's Son. Oh, what God could do if you would just give him your life, your heart. Here's one more. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 And we are confident that he, God, hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know that he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. We're so afraid of that verse, aren't we, believers? But what if I ask and he doesn't give it? Or what if I ask and he doesn't give it the way I'm asking, which is almost worse? Man, I don't know how many times I've asked God for something that was real, and he answered the prayer, but he answered it in the land between kind of way. He had to take me on a long and painful journey to get me there, but he got the prayer answered. And I think, well, if you'd have just done it my way, God. To which he would say, yeah, but you weren't ready to enter the promised land. That if I have answered your prayer the way you were asking, the way you were asking, you'd have never got where you wanted to go. You'd have never got where I wanted you to go. So Moses approaches God, and <laughs> what's amazing to me is that God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to answer this prayer. We're in the desert. We're way away from the water, but tomorrow I'm going to bring quail like you've never seen, Moses. I'm going to bring enough quail for these people to eat quail for a month. In fact, it says, you can read it later, it's another conversation for another day. They're going to eat so much quail, they're going to be sick of it. It's going to be coming out their ears. They're going to be so tired of quail when I'm done with you. And Moses' response is this, Numbers chapter 11, verse 21. But Moses responded to the Lord, there are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me. In other words, when you count their wives or children, their parents, their aunts and uncles, cousins, we're well over 1.6 million at this point. There are 600,000 foot soldiers, and yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month? I mean, even if we butchered all of our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? I mean, even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? What Moses is saying is really honest with God. Okay, God, you say you're going to take care of this. You say you're going to answer it. How are you going to do that? There's 1.6 million people. I don't even see a way for you to fix the problem. And God looks at Moses and he says, verse 23, then the Lord said to Moses, has my arm lost its power? Sometimes after I get done working out, I come home and I say, hey, boys, feel that. (laughs) In the Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time since I looked this up, but it just kind of came to me. The actual Hebrew rendering of this verse is, is my arm too short? which is kind of a weird thing. It means what we translate it here in English, like that's the connotation, but what it really means is Moses saying, these people are huge, they're massive, and God's going, I'm sorry, do I have little Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, Moses? Do do you not envision the arms that literally hold the universe like it's a tiny drop in my hand? Do you really think I'm that small? That if I tell you I'm going to do something that... I can't get it done. Moses, have you lost faith in me? And he goes on. Now you will see whether or not my words come true. And the next day, a massive storm, wind pushes so many quail in that people are gathering quail to the point where they're sick of quail. By the way, did you know quail are water creatures? They don't go near a desert. This is a miracle of biblical proportions. But God is saying there's nothing outside of my possibility. Here's the question. Will you simply cry and whine and complain, or will you cry out? Because the difference between the Israelites and Moses is Moses knows where to go to get the problem solved. And so he goes there. And I believe with all my heart that God allows desperation in our lives to drive us to our knees. And Let me encourage you with one last thing from Numbers 11 and then I'll be done. You may read this when we get there later. You may read it later today just to try to figure more stuff out. You're going to see a couple weird things. You're like, why is that there? Take a look with me. Numbers 11:25. And the Lord came down in the cloud and he spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but this never happened again. Huh? Remember, their story is our story. Everything happening there is pointing forward to Jesus. Everything happening since Jesus points backward to Jesus. It's all about Jesus what's going on in the old testament is the old testament prophets prophets we are told looked into the things they talked about things that they longed to experience the prophets today if you were to meet moses or elijah they would be sitting with you and going man what is it like what is it like could you just tell me what is what like why don't you tell me what manna tastes like forget manna what's it like having god inside you what do you mean what's it like having god inside me Moses said, you don't understand. I didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside me. I had God with me. And I was one man leading an entire nation of people. For a brief moment in time, God took the spirit that he'd given to Moses and he multiplied it to 70 people. And then he said, okay, this never happened again. But Moses and Elijah and David and Daniel and Isaiah and all of the prophets of old looked forward to today when God didn't just walk with us. No, 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 God walked in us. He is literally with you at every moment of the time, all the time. And they looked forward and said, oh, to have what you have. Christian, do you realize that you have God in you? You have the power to overcome. Victory is already yours I don't know if you understand the depth of what that means, but we're told by Paul, I think it's in Romans 8, that when we don't even know what to pray and we're crying out to God and it feels like our prayers are hitting the ceiling and we literally run out of words that the Holy Spirit inside us knows intimately what's going on in our lives and he cries out on our behalf to the Father. He mediates on our behalf. He goes to God and he says, they're tired, they're weary. I know what they're going through. Here's what they need. And the Father responds, Do you know how amazing that is? That spirit is yours today. All you need to do is surrender. Say, God, I'm yours. Here's my heart. Here's my life. Here's my family, my job, my troubles, my struggles. I know I'm stuck in this land between, but God, don't quit on me. Take me. I'm yours. Today, you can make that same plea. Some of you in this room, you've never taken that step of faith. You've never stepped forward. You've never done what that little boy did earlier in our worship service and went into the waters of baptism. You've never become one with Christ. I don't want you to leave today if that's you without making the most important decision you'll ever make because God is standing there saying, please let me help. Please let me go with you through this journey because I have a work I want to do and I don't want to waste a moment just a minute, we're going to take communion. And when we take communion, look, I want to invite some of you to make a decision. We're going to have some of our staff and our people over here on my left, your right. And um, I just want to encourage you, today is the day to just, while we're taking communion, just get up, sneak out, like our communion service is doing right now. You can just sneak over here, you can meet with them and say, today's the day I need to give my life to Jesus. The rest of us are just going to take this body, this uh, blood, it's just bread and juice don't need to freak out. But it's our celebrating the fact that God loves us and he cares for us. He is here listening to your prayers. Would you seek his face right now? Let me pray for you and then I'll hand it off to you. Father God in heaven, thank you for being a God who sees and who knows. Thank you for being intimately involved with the details of our lives. Thank you, God, for knowing whether we're in a valley or we're one day going to be in a valley. God, if you know we're going to be in one, you know exactly what's going to cause it. You know exactly how we got here, and you know exactly how to lead us through. Father, we put again our trust in you, and we thank you for being so good and faithful in Jesus' name.